Well, good evening. How is everybody? Everybody doing good? Good to see you. We have a lot more on our campus tonight. Our children's activities are beginning, and so are our youth activities. Our children's have children's choir. Our children have children's choir, and our youth are beginning a study on anxiety and depression and what the Bible teaches about it. And so we're glad that you're here. It's good to have uh, people around our campus and in our hallways again. And we're glad to see you. Those joining us by live stream as well, we welcome you tonight. We have, still have a good number watching us on Sundays and Wednesdays live stream. So we're glad that you joined us also. Great to see you. Let's pray together. We'll get started on one of the great chapters of the, old, of the New Testament tonight, John chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together. Thank you, Lord, that you can gather us. We never take that for granted, and we're thankful we can gather, we can join by live stream, we can study your word together, and God, it can come alive before us as we read what Jesus has spoken to, not just the, uh, the Pharisees, the disciples, but also spoken to us in these days as well. God, we love you, we thank you for a relationship we can have with you, and we just pray your blessings upon our time together this evening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, turn with me to John chapter 3 tonight. This is where we are as we're going through our fall study portrait of Jesus, looking at uh, the gospel of John and primarily what Jesus said. And we're looking at, um, at the third chapter tonight, one, as I mentioned, one of the great chapters in all of Scripture. Romans 8, Hebrews 11, uh, Psalm 23. These are some of the great passages in Scripture. But John 3 really ranks up there as one of the very best in all of Scripture, some of the best-known passages uh, that God has used through the years. Whenever I, the very first sermon class that I took on sermon preparation, I was at Oklahoma Baptist University, and I was in the second year, I believe I was, uh, studying there. And there was a class entitled simply The Sermon. And it was how to, how to get a sermon out of the passage and how to craft it and put it together and all of that. And in that class, Dr. Nat Bettis taught us... Um, uh, how, to, how to do all of this and put sermons together. So on Sundays, you can blame him. He's the, he's the reason the sermons aren't any better. Uh, but anyway, we would look at different aspects of the sermon, and we read together every class period, John chapter 3. One of the classmates would stand up and read it, would all follow along, and we read out loud every single class of the entire semester. We read out loud the third chapter of John, and then at the end of the semester, we would have to get a, a passage, a, a, a sermon out of one of the passages there and preach, uh, preach that passage then, but it had to be from the third chapter of John. And so it's amazing how much you learn if you just read one passage over and over every day out loud. It's amazing how much you pick up of that. So now I can almost recite it in my sleep even years later. Third chapter of John has taken on even greater significance to me because that was the one of the first sermons I preached was from this passage in the very first preaching class that I took at Oklahoma Baptist. And so tonight we're looking at a passage that uh, I've, I've known uh, well for the, through the years, through the years in John chapter 3, all 36 verses we'll be looking at it tonight. So turn there with me if you have your Bible or device, however you want to follow along. If you look at letter A on your outline, you must be born again, verses 1 through 15. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Let's stop there and talk, set the background just a little bit. The Pharisees were, they were the ones that believed in the Old Testament very strongly and the tradition of the elders. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, given their life to study the Old Testament law. 
And so they were known as the experts in the Old Testament law. And so Nicodemus would have come to Jesus, but there was something about Jesus, what he taught and the way he taught that really intrigued one of the Pharisees. Now, stop and think about this. Here is someone who had studied the Old Testament in depth, in detail, but yet Jesus taught in such a way he was curious. And he would go to Jesus to find out more. Isn't that amazing? You stop and think about it, that here's a man that, that anybody could teach on the Old Testament or, or teach spiritual truth that would really pique the interest of somebody who had studied it their entire lives. Not just studied it, he was a ruler of the Pharisees. He was one of their leaders. So uh, we see immediately that he came to Jesus asking, what do you say we have to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Now, if you were to turn that question around and ask Nicodemus, what do you say a person has to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? He would say, you have to be born a Jew. So, salvation is by birth. So, Jesus turned around and said, Nicodemus, you're half right. It is by birth, but it's the new birth, not your physical birth. So, he uses that analogy all the way through in John chapter 3. So Nicodemus would have said, it's by birth. You have to be Jewish. And if some reason you have the misfortune of being born non-Jewish, you have to become a Jew. And you could do that. Gentiles could do that. It was known as becoming a proselyte in Judaism. You would uh, be circumcised. You would uh, undergo baptism or ritual cleansing. And then you could become Jewish, start following the Old, the Old Testament Judaistic laws, and they would consider you a proselyte Jew. And they would consider that maybe you would make it to heaven, maybe. But for sure by birth, the Jews made it. In fact, there was a, there was a belief in Judaism that Abraham guarded the gates of hell. Jews thought this. Abraham guarded the gates of hell just to make sure that accidentally a Jew didn't slip by and accidentally go into hell when they're supposed to be in heaven. So Jews thought that. Abraham guarded the gates of hell to make sure Jews didn't go there. Any of them accidentally might go there. And so that's how much they thought birth mattered in getting you to heaven, into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus really kind of rocked Nicodemus' world with saying it's by birth, but not your physical birth. It's a spiritual birth. So let's, let's go on. Now, there's the background. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So, he begins by making a statement, not asking a question. But there's a question behind the statement. You ever known people like that? They want to ask you a question, but they, it begins with a statement. That's what Nicodemus was doing. He wanted to ask Jesus a question, but it began by a statement. And the Bible says he came to talk to Jesus at nighttime. Why do you think it was nighttime? Well, some theologians say because he was afraid of what the other Pharisees would think. Uh, he didn't want to be caught talking to Jesus because they considered him to be a false prophet. And, and so he was embarrassed. And so he, he, he wanted to talk to Jesus, but he didn't want anybody else to see him. That's possible. 
But it was nighttime when most people had spiritual conversations. It was hot during the day. Israel's even hotter than here. It was hot during the day. You didn't get out much during the day. You had other things that you would do during the day. But you really didn't sit down to have discussions until it cooled off at night. And also at night, you would be uninterrupted. And so a lot of theologians believe it was just simply the custom of the day to visit at night, have spiritual conversations at night. And maybe Nicodemus thought, I can talk to Jesus without being interrupted. So that's why he came at nighttime. We don't know, but we are told specifically he came at night. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi, so immediately it was a term of respect. All the way through, you see Nicodemus respecting Jesus. He doesn't seem to be one of them that, that was just antagonistic toward Jesus, trying to trap him. This seems like a legitimate question and a legitimate conversation. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. Who's we? He's by himself. So who's he talking about? The religious leaders didn't all think that. But most Bible scholars believe that there were a few of the Pharisees that kind of wondered in the back of their minds, is Jesus the promised Messiah? And, and they were kind of curious. Now, they weren't outspoken because most of the Pharisees were really antagonistic against Jesus, so they didn't come out in favor of him. They just secretly believed it. And Nicodemus could have been one of those. We do have evidence there were two or three Pharisees sympathetic to Jesus. And so it's very possible he was talking about the two or three who were sympathetic and saying, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Because no one can do these miracles, these signs you're doing, unless God is with him. Makes a statement. But look at the response of Jesus. He didn't say, well, thanks, Nicodemus. That's nice of you. Notice verse 3, what he says. Jesus answered it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this chapter of John 3 talks about salvation by faith rather than works as good as anything Paul wrote. Now, most people think, it. well, Paul is the, he was the one that championed salvation by faith, not works. But this chapter, it's up there. Anything that Paul wrote of saying salvation is by faith, not of works. Jesus told Nicodemus, anytime remember, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, I say to you, Anytime he repeats something twice, it's for emphasis. So whatever he says, following the truly, trulys is really important. And that's why he said, truly, truly, I say, unless one is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. Now put yourself into Nicodemus' mind. He would have thought, ah, he's talking about the Gentiles. They are the ones that need to be born again so they can be born Jewish. Or they're the ones that need to be born again because they need to become a proselyte Jew. So he's talking about Gentiles. So he would interpret it, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a Gentile can somehow be born all over again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's how he would have interpreted it. But Jesus is not talking about just Gentiles. 
he's talking about Nicodemus and he's talking about Jews and he's talking about us anyone must be born again or they cannot see the kingdom of heaven now the word born again is interesting it's two words in English it's only one word in Greek it's anothen it literally means as you know it born physically all over again it could also mean born from above a spiritual birth and so that's why some of your translations say if you must be born from above because it can be translated either born from above or born again notice he didn't say he needs to be washed he needs to be baptized he said he needs to be born again verse 4 Nicodemus said to him how can a man be born when he is old he's still thinking physical birth can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus is thinking physical birth. How can a Gentile go back into his mother's womb and be born all over? It's impossible, Lord. So he's still thinking physical birth. Why is that important? Because of what Jesus says next. Jesus answered verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you. There's that truly, truly again. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So there you have it. You have to be baptized to be saved, right? Wrong. Let's talk about it. A lot of people look at this verse, Church of Christ, point to verse 5 and say, see there, you have to be baptized to be a Christian. You have to be born of the water and of the Spirit. Baptism helps wash your sins away. Baptism helps to save you. Not just Church of Christ, there are other denominations that point to John 3, 5, saying, see there, you have to be baptized to be saved. Is that what Jesus is talking about? No. Now, there are about six different interpretations of what he means. Let me go through some of them. Some of them I think would just dismiss right away. For example, some say, well, water there is symbolic of the Word of God. So you have to be born and hear the Word of God and be born by the Spirit in order to be saved. Well, that's nice and well, but where does it say anywhere that you, the water means the Word of God? That's just kind of something you came up arbitrarily. And it's better to let, it's, in fact, it's truthful, let the Word of God develop your beliefs, not you take your beliefs to the Word of God. So you kind of rule that one out. Another one is, he's talking about ritual washings. Because the Jews, they didn't baptize. They proselyted, they baptized. If you're a Gentile, you could be baptized and become a Jew. But Jews didn't baptize. They washed, but they didn't baptize. They would wash ceremonially so they'd be clean to come to church, but they didn't baptize. And so Nicodemus is probably not thinking Christian baptism here. Another theory. Some say that Jesus is talking about John the Baptist's baptism because whenever John the Baptist came, he did baptize, a baptism of repentance. He would actually dunk them. They would go under the water. He baptized Jesus. Jesus went under the water, came up out of the water. So, some say he was referring to John the Baptist's teaching of repentance. You must repent and be born of the Spirit. That's possible. 
but he didn't mention John the Baptist here. So you're kind of left with two main theories. Either Jesus is referring to baptism and you must be baptized in order to be saved, or he's talking about physical birth, which is a water birth. The fetus is in the amniotic fluids. Whenever a woman begins to have labor, her water broke. The baby is in water. There is a physical birth and there is a spiritual birth. So you're left with those two options. Either he's talking about baptism is required or he's talking about a physical birth with your mother birth, with your mother's birth. So which one was it? Well, if he was talking about baptism being a uh, being required for salvation, then that is not how the rest of Scripture teaches. John 3.16 doesn't teach it. John 3.36 doesn't teach it. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 does not teach baptism is required for salvation. Titus 3.5 does not teach that baptism is required for salvation. Nowhere else in Scripture does it teach baptism is required for salvation. So, you're pulling one verse out that's never taught anywhere else, and that's your interpretation. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus was talking about something else. What about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized, and Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And I had a Church of Christ one time tell me, Well, that's Jesus telling him directly. He can say anything directly. Well, the Word of God is Jesus speaking directly too. So, if it's not backed up with the rest of Scripture, then we're left with the one interpretation. He was talking about a physical birth. You must be born twice. You must be birthed once by your mother and once by the Spirit. You must be born of the water and of the Spirit. That's exactly what he's talking about. Because what analogy had he used with Nicodemus from the very first? Physical birth. So it fits directly in the context of what he's been talking about. So to me, the passage is very clear. Jesus is talking about there must be two births for you to go to heaven. A physical birth and then a spiritual birth. You must be born of the water, Nicodemus, and you must be born of the Spirit or you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Sounds like he's talking about a physical birth, doesn't he? And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So again, the analogy of the physical birth and the spiritual birth, flesh is flesh, spirit, spirit. You don't become, you don't have a spiritual birth in the flesh. You can't be saved on your own. God must transform your heart for you to have a spiritual birth. Now, here's something significant about verse 7. Verse 7, Jesus said, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus already told him that once. He said, You must be born again. But the first time he said it, it was singular you. You, Nicodemus, must be born again. Second time he says it in verse 7, it's plural. The you is plural in Greek. So, he's saying, you all must be born again. Texas would say, y'all must be born again. But what he's saying is, it's not just Nicodemus. It's everybody. Everybody must have a spiritual birth 
if you're going to see the kingdom of heaven. Now, you know, folks, that's something that we talk about, and you've heard in Baptist churches a lot, and that's something you would think everybody knows. You would be surprised how many people I talk to, and you talk about salvation with them, and they talk about everything but a spiritual birth. They talk about where they, where they grew up, where, where, where they went to church as a kid. They talk about what they learned in Sunday school as a kid. They talk about whenever they joined the church. They talk when they were baptized. We're not talking about, we're talking about a spiritual birth. A time in your life that you with your own lips and your own heart said, God, forgive me. I believe Jesus died on the cross. Save me. <laughs> As much as we talk about it, as much as Jesus talked about it, it's amazing how many church members still don't get it. You must have a spiritual birth. Not just, well, I started going to church and, you know, my grandmother taught me and, boy, she was a godly woman and I learned. It's, it's none of that. When did you have a spiritual birth? Not your grandmother, not the pastor. When did you have one? And that's what he talks about here. You must have a spiritual birth or you will never, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus used the plural. Then verse 8, he used the analogy of the wind. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. What he's saying is when the Spirit of God convicts you and, uh, of, of the need to trust Christ as Savior. It's kind of like the wind blowing. He uses that analogy. Well, what does he mean, the wind blowing? Well, the wind is sovereign, does what it wants. You can't direct the wind. You can't harness the wind, can you? We're trying those big windmills to generate electricity from wind, but you can't harness the wind. So it's sovereign. So is the Spirit. And you can see the wind's effects. You can see the Spirit's effects in your life. And you can't explain it. You can't explain the wind. Where does the wind come from? Where does it start? I don't know. Where's it going? I, I don't know. Who knows? And you can't explain the Spirit of God. Why did the Spirit of God convict me to be saved? Why me? Why did the Spirit convict you? And now that the Spirit has convicted you, what do you do about it? Do you receive his conviction? And are you saved? So Jesus used the analogy of the Spirit blowing. Kind of interesting. Well, Nicodemus is totally confused by now, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus responded, You're the teacher. Verse 10, answer, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? So Nicodemus goes, I don't understand. And Jesus says, I'm not the teacher. You're the, you're the one that studied it your whole life. And you don't understand born again? Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you. Boy, he's used that phrase a lot, hasn't he? There must be a lot in John 3 Jesus really wants you to hear and me to hear because he said Truly, truly a lot. Verse 11, truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive 
our testimony. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. He came from God. Then why is he using the plural, us and we? Trinity. He came from the Father. He is standing before Nicodemus, sent from God. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So he is plainly telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the one standing before you was sent from heaven. I am God in the flesh before you, telling you spiritual things, but you don't understand them. And then he uses another analogy. I find this one interesting, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. First time now Jesus has ever mentioned the phrase eternal life. First time ever he has hinted at the cross. And the first time ever he has hinted by what manner of death he would die, lifted up. So he's starting to give us a clue. Now remember, Nicodemus would have known the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He would have known Numbers chapter 21. So Jesus uses an incident that happened in Numbers chapter 21 to bring to light what, what you must do to be saved from an incident that happened in the wilderness with the Israelites in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. You, you remember the story. Israelites had complained. That's nothing new. They complained all the time. But this time, they complained against Moses so severely, God sent a plague of snakes to bite them. They were venomous snakes. The people started dying one right after the other. The people cried out, oh, Moses, we're sorry. Would you please go to God on our behalf and somehow make these snakes stop biting us? We're all dying. So, as a result, God told Moses to fashion a bronze serpent. He fashioned a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, lifted it up among the people, and all the people had to do was look upon it. They didn't have to touch it. They didn't have to bow down to it. They didn't have to do any. They didn't have to create a venom, anti-venom. Venom. They just had to look. And it was by faith. If I, if I, I believe if I look, it's going to save me from these snake bites. And they, that's all they had to do. And they looked. And those that looked were saved from the snake bites. Those that did not look perished. Very simple, right? So Jesus used that analogy, talking about himself being lifted up, that whoever looks to him in faith will be saved, not from snake bites, but from death and hell. And those who do not look will perish. Very simple. So in John chapter 3, Jesus sets out very plainly belief versus unbelief, heaven versus hell, saved versus lost. And folks, any of us tonight must it's imperative that we examine ourselves and say, which one am I? Do I believe or do I not believe? 
Have I trusted Christ? Have I not trusted Christ? Am I bound for heaven or am I bound for hell? Do I have eternal life or will I eternally perish? He lays them out side by side through the entire chapter. And he uses analogy of Moses and the serpent to say, if you look to me, you will be saved. Now let's go letter B on your outline. For God so loved the world. Chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. Of course, 16, the most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So what Jesus is getting across to a religious man is not reformation but transformation. Nicodemus, there's nothing in your life you need to tweak. There's nothing in your life you need to change. There's nothing in your life you need to become. You need a whole new transformation from the inside. And so tonight, there's nothing you need to change. There's nothing you need to tweak. There's nothing you need to add to your life. You need a transformation from the inside out. And only God can do that. Only Christ can do that. For God so loved the world, he said, that he gave his only son, that whoever, Nicodemus, Jew, Gentile, the elect, the non-elect, whoever you are, if you believe in him, you'll not perish. The word perish there uh, is interesting. Apolitai is the word. It means to be ruined. It doesn't, it doesn't mean annihilation. So in other words, a lot of people think, well, whenever I die, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to lay out in the cemetery. I'm just going to be, I just, I'm annihilated. I don't go to heaven. I don't go to hell. I'm just nothing. But he doesn't use the word annihilation. He uses the word apolitai, which means ruined, but, but fellowship's not broken. So in other words, you have an existence somewhere. You'll not perish but you'll have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What does the world accuse Christians of the most? Being too condemning. Isn't it interesting that John, uh, Jesus said, the Son of Man didn't come into the world to condemn it. He came to save it. Maybe, maybe our message should be one of salvation more than condemnation. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes when we just tell people the truth of Scripture, we're accused of being condemning. That's not condemning. That's just sharing the truth with them. Sometimes they don't want to hear the truth. Oh, you're just condemning me. No, I'm telling you what the Word says. That's fine. We should tell them what the Word says. But when it's a true spirit of condemnation against others, that's where we need to speak the word of salvation because that's the reason Christ came. It was to save. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus came into a world that was already condemned in order to save it. That's what he's trying to say. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, 
And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's one of the reasons that some people don't like you telling them the truth. Their deeds are evil. They love the darkness. They love darkness better than light. That's why they said, well, you're just condemning me. You're just judging me. Well, the Bible is not true. The Bible is old-fashioned. The Bible needs to be re redone. It it's, we've advanced beyond it. So they come up with all of these reasons because they love darkness more than light. They love their lifestyle. They love what they're doing. They don't want to be told they're wrong. And so he tells us right after the condemnation part, the reason people sometimes accuse us of that is because they don't like the darkness. They don't want to see the light. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Do you think there are people tonight that do not want to be saved because they don't want to give up something in their life that they know they'll have to give up if they're saved? Yes. And here it is. If they come to the light, their works are going to be exposed. And so Jesus is very blunt and very clear with Nicodemus. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Conversation with Nicodemus ends. Jesus had no direct appeal. Nicodemus, are you going to believe? We're not told if Nicodemus believed. We're not told his reaction. We're not told if he scratched his head anymore. We're not told did he turn and walk away. We're just, we're left hanging. We don't know. Did Nicodemus ever become born again? Well, we don't know. But we have a clue, don't we? You remember the, the resurrection? Who come to get Jesus' body to take it and give it a proper burial and wrap it? It's Nicodemus. Why would he do that if he never received Christ, if he never believed what Christ said? Tradition says he did become a Christian, that he did believe the words Jesus spoke and that he was born again. And he became a secret follower of Christ until later became a martyr. But the Bible does tell us it was Nicodemus there after the, I mean, after the crucifixion asking for the body of Christ. So maybe, maybe he did. Go to letter C on your outline and we'll wrap up the chapter. John the Baptist exalts Christ. If you remember from the last two weeks, John the Baptist is talked about a lot. In fact, John, the gospel writer, who is not John the Baptist, by the way, uh, he, this is John, the follower of Jesus, disciple of Jesus. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ, forerunner of the Messiah. If you remember, John talks about John the Baptist far more than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And if you remember from the past two weeks, there's a reason why. By the time John wrote his gospel, which is later, 85 or so A.D. The others wrote around 60 to 65 A.D. So John's writing 20 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke came, came out. 
By the time John wrote, there was a sect within the church that had arisen that elevated John the Baptist higher than Jesus. They were called the Manians. In fact, there's still a group, as I've mentioned the last two weeks, there's still a group of Manians who are in the Middle East, uh, in, in Iraq, south of Baghdad, that are still practicing, and they still believe John the Baptist is greater than Jesus. But this group had started to kind of make some noise in the Christian community that John the Baptist was greater than Jesus. So part of the reason John wrote was to, was to let everybody know John the Baptist repeatedly says, I'm not greater than Christ. And so in the last chapter we saw where John the Baptist said, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not the Messiah. He is, but I'm not worthy to even bend down and untie his shoes. And so now, 22 through 36, we'll wrap this up. He again talks about John the Baptist exalting Christ. Read me verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside. So that would have been traveling about 45, 50 miles up from where the conversation with Nicodemus took place. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. So wait a minute, was Jesus baptizing? I don't think Jesus ever baptized anybody. Well, John 4, 2 says he didn't. His disciples did. So his disciples were there baptizing while Jesus was there. John, verse 23, was also baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there. People were coming and being baptized. Why did John tell us the exact spot John the Baptist was baptizing? You know why? I never noticed this for a long time. The reason why, we don't know for certain where Enon beyond Salem was and near Salem was, but we got a pretty good clue. In fact, People still baptize in the same spot in Israel where John the Baptist baptized. We don't. It's a little polluted and it's nasty water. We go upstream uh, and we baptize there. The water's a lot cleaner. But a few people still baptize at Enon near Salem because that's where Jesus was baptized. But it's also the exact spot where the Israelites crossed the promised land back in Joshua from east of the Jordan into, the Can into Canaan. Same place. And so I believe one of the reasons John tells us that is letting us know it's the same location where the Israelites crossed into the promised land back in Joshua. Verse 24, for John had not yet been in, put in prison. Verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. That was Jesus and his disciples. So here's what's happening. John was baptizing. Jesus' disciples were baptizing. John was preaching. Jesus is preaching along the same Jordan, different locations, so it looked like they were in competition with one another. So the Jew came to John the Baptist and said, hey, you know that guy you were talking about earlier? Well, now he's got his own group and he's baptizing in competition with you and some of his followers, I mean, your followers are going over to him. Doesn't that kind of irk you a little bit? And notice John's response. Verse 27. 
A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ. I have been sent before him. The one has the bride is who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What he's saying is, he's the bridegroom, I'm the best man. The bride doesn't marry the best man. The bride marries the bridegroom. And on wedding day, the best man's job is to run around and make sure everything's perfect for the bride, the bridegroom. It's not my day, it's his day. And he used the same analogy that we would know as the best man and the bridegroom and the bride. The Old Testament uses this figure over and over and over. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and, and, and uh, Isaiah all use the imagery of, of the bride and the bridegroom as Christ and the church. And so John's saying, I'm just the best man. It's not my day. It's his day. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. What do you think those people in the early church that elevated John the Baptist thought about that? Be very clear, wouldn't it? <laughs> John never intended to be elevated above Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. And that's a good philosophy of our lives as well, folks, by the way. He must increase, and we must decrease. And then finally, 31 to 37, 36. He who comes, before, um, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Verse 32, two, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Interesting, he uses the word martyr there, which John the Baptist would become someone who dies for your faith. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So for verse 36 wraps up the entire chapter. If you believe in Jesus, the wrath of God is not upon you. You're not condemned. But if you reject Christ, if the Holy Spirit's convicted you, and you reject Christ, the wrath of God remains upon you, and you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Questions or comments? We have microphones here. If any of you live want to come to the microphone, ask a question or make a comment before we wrap up tonight. Anybody at all? Yes. Feel free, anybody, to make your way to the microphone. Yes, sir. Hey, so um, I'm just curious, since you're talking about being born twice, being yes. born of the flesh and born of the spirit, um, and I know this kind of might be a bit of a loaded question, but what about for those who were not born physically, like stillborns? Great, great question. What about stillborns? What about those that have never had a physical birth? I think Jesus here is referring, later on, I think he kind of addresses that. David addressed it earlier in the Old Testament. He says when he had a child die and said, I can't go, I can't bring him back, but I can go to where he is. Kind of gives us a clue that those, that, that the baby, without reaching an age of accountability or without a life at that time, 
still went to heaven to be with to be with the Lord. So I think Jesus here is talking to Nicodemus, someone who had physical birth. So I don't think he's making a general statement that, you know, if you if you don't have physical birth, you cannot have spiritual birth either. It's a great question, excellent question. And but I think that what he's saying is here is if you've had physical birth, you must have a spiritual birth too if you're going to see the kingdom of God. But other places in Scripture, we do get insight that those who maybe a stillborn or those who have never had life physically or a birth still have spiritual life because he says whenever David said I can't bring them back but I can go to where they are so great question very good very thank good. you yes thank you any other questions excellent all right well it's good to study God's word with you and we'll pick up next week chapter four next Wednesday night Jesus and the Samaritan woman we get into a lot of good stuff there that'll be fun so let's pray together and we'll dismiss. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the truths that Jesus spoke. And dear God, thank you that you made it so plain through Scripture that we must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, I just pray any watching by live stream, any who are here in person tonight who have never had a born-again experience, that tonight before they close their eyes and sleep, that they would, they would pray and ask, ask you, Lord, to... Forgive them of their sins, and they would accept Jesus Christ into their heart and life as Savior and Lord. Thank you, Father, for sharing with us exactly what it takes to have eternal life. God bless the people tonight. I thank you for them. Continue our study, Father. May your presence go with us in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.